About 15 years ago, a friend of mine was so moved by a book that uh, she bought a copy for uh, me and my whole family. It was called The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch. It was a powerhouse. People talk about the world just laying open for them, and, and Randy uh, was that guy. He was extraordinarily gifted, worked extraordinarily hard, and he arrived. When he wrote the book, he seemed like he was on top of the world uh, with work and with family. He was the professor of computer science, at hum uh, computer science, human computer interaction and design at Carnegie Mellon University. He was an award-winning teacher and researcher. He worked with Adobe, Google, Electronic Arts, Walt Disney, and pioneered a nonprofit to support youth in computer technology. On the home front, he was married. He had three young boys. To many, including himself, his life looked like a dream. And at 46, he was excited and looking forward to what the next half of life would hold. At that time, Randy was diagnosed with cancer. He had the best medical care that was available, but the treatments were ineffective, and the doctors told him that he had three, maybe six months of relative health left and then his body would decline rapidly, and he would die. It was a jarring and heartbreaking diagnosis, not just for the loss of what he had built, but perhaps even more for what he had left to give. The future he spent his life for wasn't going to happen. And so what did he do? He did the best thing that he knew how. He tried to make the most of that three months. As a husband, father, and professor, he gave his limited health to what he hoped might most endure. He stepped back from regular teaching at the university and gave time to his family, and especially his last lecture. A last lecture, if you're not familiar with it, and I, I'm not in this community and was not that familiar with it either, but in academia, it's a commonplace activity. It's when a retiring professor gives their final instruction to their students. They're generally great. It's like a mini magnum opus of all the most important and profound bits of wisdom that they've gathered over their career, their life. Randy's came much earlier than expected, but he handled it much differently too. Instead of words of wisdom for students and colleagues, his were to his sons. Not old enough really to comprehend what was going on. He wanted to give them a way to learn from their father after he could no longer be with them. As it turns out, Randy's lecture struck a chord with many. It was recorded, turned into a book, and was a, a viral publishing sensation. People passed his story on just like that friend did to me, and they wanted more. More of his wisdom. They wanted to see a miraculous recovery but a very short time later, Randy passed away. What do you think you would do? It's not easy to answer. Sometimes we don't have the time to think about it like Randy did. Some of you probably remember the recent Bills versus Bengals game. It was early in the first quarter when Bills safety, DeMar Hamlin, made an, an ordinary tackle. He got back up, and he immediately fell straight back down. Almost instantly, players, coaches, and fans realized that something was wrong. Players gathered around. 
The roaring stadium fell to an eerie whisper, and announcers cut to commercial break after commercial break. No one said it out loud, but it was clear that we were all wondering the same thing. Are we witnessing the healthiest, one of the healthiest people on the planet, in the prime of his life, living his dream, die on national TV? As time went on, hours and then days, we came to find out that DeMar had suffered a cardiac arrest. As cardiac arrests go, his chance of survival was 10%. There was a 90% chance that he would die. Millions watched as this elite human being laid helpless on full life support on a hospital bed. Fortunately, DeMar was one of the 10%. He came out of the coma and is recovering surprisingly well. The point is, no matter how strong we are, how well we're doing, how much more we have to give, we are fragile. As Paul puts it later on in this very letter, we are like jars of clay hard-pressed on every side. The problem is we don't really handle our fragility very well. For the most part, we try to ignore it. We don the rose-colored glasses and feign invincibility. We are tough, but it doesn't work. No matter how hard we try, the truth keeps poking holes in our delusion. On the physical side, every day we get a little older. Some of you know better this experience than others. At a certain point, we don't run as fast. We don't lift as much. Our bones hurt. Those six-pack abs, they fade. And um, so does our vision, and so does our memory, thankfully. And on the mental side, it's worse. Every one of our personal histories is fraught with anxiety, temptation, and failure. In the face of our anxiety, we shrink back from what we ought to do. And in the face of our temptations, we give way. In fact, the more obvious our fragility becomes, the weakness becomes, our inability to control our circumstances, the more seriously we look for relief or escape in any form that we can find it, even if that's escape from life itself. And this is where God meets us in Paul's confession to the Corinthians. In verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, I think our first impulse hearing a story like that from anyone is to ask, what happened? That had to be so bad. And especially if it drove Paul to this point. I mean, Paul's no stranger to suffering. In chapter 11, in this very letter, this is what he says in just chapter 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, 
through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure and apart from other things. There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So what, what in the world happened? And yet Paul, he doesn't tell us the case-specific details here. And I think that's on purpose. We're not supposed to be able to distance ourselves too far from his experience. The bigger deal is that Paul felt like he had been pushed so far beyond what he could handle that he despaired. And that's something that's meant to resonate with all of us. So what's despair? John MacArthur broke it down this way, and this was one of the most helpful explanations to me. He said, the word... He said the the root word in the Greek is porous, which means passage. And that, together with the prefix de, means no passage. It's to say there is no exit. There's no way out. It's to be so overwhelmed physically or mentally that you let go or release your grip on life. It's an awful space. Uh, It's like uh, drowning. Some think of that as the most horrendous way to die. There's, there's thrashing, and then eventually your strength is overcome, your inability to do anything about it, and you slowly sink below the water, and you stop fighting, and you let go. But when we think about it in the life of Paul, it seems worse, if not unfathomable, For a big extra here, Paul is no ordinary man. He's a Christian of Christians, a pastor to the pastors. He was called and set apart by God to be an apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write much of the New Testament and bring the gospel to the known world. If you're looking for someone that really understands the gospel, who really gets how it connects to life and practice, Paul is that guy more than any other guy. And so Paul's despair is certainly that his own strength is gone. But it would seem that he's also wrestling with that unutterable voice of doubt that maybe his God's strength is gone, or at least insufficient for this task. And so what does he do? Well, he lets go, but God doesn't. It's right here when Paul is at the end of himself, when he's convinced that he's received the sentence of death, that all that he had envisioned yet to do on this earth, that he, that he felt that God had called him to do was going to get cut short, that he lets go and finds anew that his God knows, his God is there, is sufficient for the task, and more and more. For as Paul describes it, it wasn't an accident that he found himself in this place. It was according to God's purpose his design, his God is in charge here at the doorstep of the end of his life too. He says, verse nine, but that was to make us. God made us. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but God, and specifically the God who raises the dead. And that point is just as noteworthy. You see, death is, is the ultimate trump card for life. For instance, what's your heart's desire? 
Money, security, love, children, island paradise today. We're just suspended in disbelief. It's not possible. And it sounds good, right? I, I mean, a whole lot of problems go away. Happy life. Our heart's desire has been found. But there's a catch. It will cost you your life. Well, in that case, well, it's not such a good deal, right? In fact, it's instantly a no deal. If we can't have that stuff with life, then what's the point? But you see, if God is the God who raises the dead, who's thereby and necessarily stronger than death, then not only can he deliver us from the ultimate trump card on our life, he can deliver us everything less than death. And that's the realization that infuses Paul with a supernatural vitality, a bold sense of almost invincibility. As he continues in verse 10, he says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. I love that. Um, it's a boldness that doesn't just live life intentionally so as to make the most out of the time that we have, which we should all do. But it is future-focused past death in such a way that death is not our ultimate end. In other words, Paul has gained such a sure confidence in the preserving care and power of his invincible God that he doesn't fear the loss of anything, even his life, because he knows his God is able and has determined to return it a hundredfold and more in the next. As Paul put it in his letter to the Philippians, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Or perhaps even more to the point in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In other words, not only will God deliver us from such a death, but in Christ he will give us all things, more than money can buy, more love, more beauty, more than an island paradise, more security than Cheyenne Mountain Bunker, and all that without loss or fading forever. And so what's next? Well, Paul says, verse 11, go forth and conquer. Not exactly. He says, you must help us by prayer. When I read that, I said, what? With such a renewed sense of vigor and energy, why, why prayer? Because, you see, we can't help but pray when we're forced to rely not on ourselves, but on God. That's one of the beautiful parts of Damar Hamlin in that incident. It was a surreal moment, even watching it on TV, for some unexplained, unexpected whatever when this perfectly healthy giant of a human being collapsed on the ground, a quick sobriety fell across every player, coach, referee, fan, and spectator. And do you know what they did? It happened so fast, so instinctively. It was like it was choreographed, but, but it wasn't. They all got down on a knee, they bowed their heads, and they prayed. 
in an NFL stadium broadcast on live television became a giant revival church. <laughs> it was like they knew what to do when they knew there was nothing that they could do. And so what is Paul really showing us here? Well, at the most basic level, when, when Paul came face to face with the end of himself and a certain sentence of death, he saw Christ. And through him, he gained a renewed confidence in his invincible God. You see, as fragile people, we have an instinctive drive to protect ourselves. It's our survival instinct. It's why we invest in safe cars, friendly neighborhoods, savings, fitness, and nutrition. And that's obviously not all bad, but sometimes we confuse these things as our security or as invoking us with independent autonomy and invincibility. On the other hand, we find in Christ this wonder, for he had real invincibility and immortality. And he exchanged that for fragility and mortality. And then when he was faced with the prospect of certain death, he didn't turn to self-reliance, self-protectionism, anxiety, or giving way to the temptation for relief and escape, but through prayer, he entrusted himself into the hands of his father. In his dying breath, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And his father, the invincible God who raises the dead, raised him from the dead. And so what difference does this make? Well, first, let's return to Randy. From the perspective of this world, Randy was a great man. And there's truly much to respect in him. He handled re the reality of death with a lot of grace and maturity. But from a Christian perspective, as I read that book, there was a glaring omission in his last lecture. And he knew it. It was on purpose. He even joked about it. He said, this is not about religion or spirituality or a deathbed conversion. And then his joke, though I did buy a Macintosh, which is, uh, must have been a PC guy. You see, for Randy, death was it. There was no God in, this life, in his life, and therefore there was no after this life. And that obviously had a profound effect on how he lived his life. From his perspective, life was about how much you could get for as long as you could get it. It was about realizing childhood dreams. It was carpe diem, seize the day. And there's, there's right stuff about some of those perspectives. We should strive to make the most of every day. Waste is sinful. But if tomorrow and eternal life are a certainty, then what we do today isn't as much about today as it is about an eternal tomorrow. And so what do we take away from this? In the renewed confidence that God is, that God knows that he has the power and will take care of us in death and everything less than that, we need to live our lives more out of faith in his care than in our own. It's the difference between approaching life from the perspective of fragility and temporality versus invincibility and immortality. Imagine that before you are two doors. It's like on the price is right. On the top of the, the left door, your left, it says, Y-O-U, you. Inside is a short and fragile life. It's whatever you can get for as long as you can get it. It's all up to you. 
and after a little while, you die. It's how the animals live. On top of the door, on the right, it says, H-I-M, him. Inside that door is an all-powerful and personal heavenly father. He loves you. He did not even withhold his only son to rescue you. Behind that door, it's not all about you, but it is good for you. And ultimately, everything there depends not on you, but him. And finally, he loves you so much that he will not withhold everything that is good, and it will never, ever end. And so what do you choose? The right door is so much better than it all depends on you. And yet, even as Christians, even when we know, even after we profess, we know the door on the right is better, is real, and the door on the left is a lie, and even worse than it looks, we, we, and even worse than it looks, we, we drift again and again back over to the left. And that's what Paul is trying to show us here. It's not that the Christian life is going to be easy. We all know it isn't, but that our invincible God has more power than the hardest it can be, and therefore everything less than that as well. As a result, in Christ, there is strength not, only, not just to be wise stewards of the time we have on this earth, to make the most of it, but to boldly, prayerfully, and faithfully keep striving to follow after Christ, to keep taking step after step, even through pain, fear, and uncertainty, even through the valley of the shadow of death, because our future does not ultimately depend on our strength, but his. As Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of John, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And as Paul puts it a little later in this letter, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And therefore, if you're not a Christian today, consider the difference between your left door it all depends on me, delusion, and the right door, a true reality that God offers everyone that will come to him in Christ. Choose Christ. And if you're a Christian, be renewed like Paul in the confidence that our invisible God is faithful. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God who raises the dead. Lord, would you please strengthen our faith. Give us boldness, not because of some power that we have, but because you have all power, Lord. There is nothing in this world that you cannot remedy. And so give us strength in that, Lord, to follow after you with boldness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.